It's a pleasure to welcome Muridharan um, Tarayev, um, reader and head of the Department of English from St. Aloysius College in Trishur, Kerala. Um, his research interests um, and publications include a range of topics, including British cinema, Indian cinema, national interests in regional cinema in India, like Malayalam cinema, queer sexualities in India, masculinity in Malayalam literature, and various other topics. So today he's going to talk to us about his current book project, Historicizing Malayalam Cinema. And um, yeah, please join me in welcoming Muridharan Tarayev. Thank you, Nisha. <coughs> uh, I'm presenting here what actually is uh, going to be one of the chapters in a book I'm currently working on. and. Uh, in this book, my, my attempt is to see what exactly Malayalam cinema is trying to do in Kerala, instead of, uh, instead of looking at it from a conventional chronological point of view, I'm trying to see what is its cultural and political relevance in a region called Kerala. So, I mean, I shall read out uh, my paper and uh, later maybe we can stop here and there and have some further discussions. In spite of being the most productive and second largest film industry in the world, Indian cinema started attracting serious academic attention only in the late 1980s. The initial impetus to study Indian cinema was facilitated to a large extent by the post-colonial debates, which at that time was emerging as a dynamic yet youthful academic discipline. This could perhaps explain why most of the early discussions in this discipline were restricted within the discursive framework of nationalism. The Mumbai-based Hindi cinema, subsequently christened as Bollywood, became the prime concern of Indian film studies. Simultaneously, anti-colonial nationalism was assumed as the dominant discursive logic that structured the narratives of our film texts and constructed the viewing subjectivities they addressed or engaged with. The international esteem earned by filmmakers like Satyajit Rai and Hrithik Ghatak made it mandatory that Bengali cinema also find mention in some of these early discussions. Yet, the broad parameters of these debates, even when referring to a distinctly regional film industry like Bengal, continue to be charted out by the nation and its narratives. So this is one of the issues that I want to address in my work, that why we are discussing cinema only within the framework of the nation. <coughs> How a nation tells its unifying and legitimizing story to its citizens is important to a critical understanding of nationhood, and the role of cinema is crucial in such a cultural project. Yet, more recent discussions on postcoloniality have recognized nationalism as a problematic discourse ridden with internal contradictions. Surprisingly, the challenges and negotiations that the discourse of the nation has been encountering and dealing with from the regional locations have so far received relatively scant critical attention. I use the term region here to refer to many geographical and even cultural domains within the peninsula that continue to be precariously poised within the national imaginary. The complicated policies through which regions located beyond the metropolitan mainstream of modernity constantly negotiate with nego hegemonic imaginations of national identity and citizenship deserves more detailed attention than what it has so far received. Few post-colonial colonial investigations have ventured to examine these processes and highlight their significance to any evaluation of our post-colonial predicament. This is not to assume that the regions themselves were well-defined discursive formations 
already constituted and monolithic, engaging with an invading discourse of the nation. Instead, the very discursive engagement with the nation could be seen to have contributed the crucial impetus to the discursive transformation of um, some of the regions as cultural and political entities. <coughs> By lavishing an unrelenting critical focus on the Bollywood, most academic evaluations of Indian cinema have been showing a tendency to read the regional cinemas through a simplifying logic that reduces them into simpler versions of the national. By that, I mean Hindi cinema, thereby obscuring or even negating the distinct cultural and political forces they represent. Considering the conceptual affinity that cinema has with the discourse of the nationhood and the ideological and economic concerns that yoke cinematic representations to social subjectivities, the discourse of regional cinemas could constitute a deconstructive gaze capable of rendering unstable the facets of uh, normative nationhood. In this discussion, I shall look at the beginnings of Malayalam cinema, especially the historic circumstances in which Malayalam cinema emerged as a recognizable genre. <coughs> at the same time, I have an additional motive in this reading. My attempt is also to use Malayalam cinema as a convenient tool to study the advent of modernity in the region now known as Kerala, as the three former princely states, Malabar, Cochin, and Travancore, which had gone through divergent historical processes, were being redefined as a single state and at the same time inscribed into the narrative of the new nation. I use the term modern here to refer also to what Miriam Hansen has described as a paradigmatic transformation of the conditions under which art is produced, transmitted, and consumed. Modernity thus refers to the emergence of new modes of organizing vision and sensory perception, uh, sociability and leisure. My reading of the formative years of Malayalam cinema shall illuminate the complex political appropriations that generated the demand for and led to the emergence of a Malayalam cinema in Kerala, a region that was rather remote from the Hindi-speaking nation, both geographically and culturally. I will also demonstrate how it decent its disintegrated location as a non-Hindi speaking region in the southwest corner, neatly separated from the rest of the peninsula by the Western Ghats, played a central role in structuring the social dialectics and aesthetic sensibilities that subsequently became hegemonic in Kerala. <coughs> now, my next section is titled Narrating the Region. Most historical accounts associate the beginning of Indian cinema with the production of Falke's silent film Raja Harishchandra made in 1913. According to Ashish Raja Diksha, the well-known film critic, Falke is considered the pioneer of Indian cinema, not only because he made the first Indian film. Actually, he did not make the first Indian film. Yeah, I mean, the first Indian film is supposed to be lost. So he, this is the first known Indian film, available Indian film. But because he conceived of filmmaking as a nationalist and specifically Sudeshi enterprise. Currently available statistics point out that a total of uh, 1,288 silent films were, be, were made and exhibited all over India between 1913 and 1934. <coughs> In spite of the absence of a spoken language, these films carried obvious <coughs> indications of their regional affiliation. So even though Falke sup was supposed to be making the first national cinema or whatever, if, when we watch uh, Falke's film, first film, that is Raja Harishchandra, you can see that 
he is distinctly addressing a, a local uh, geography. His characters are dressed according to the traditions of Maharashtra. The landscape he evokes is that of Maharashtra. So, I mean, there was an element of uh, region definitely even in the first national cinema that was being made. <coughs> the plot, choice of locales, dress codes, etc. of this film uh, clearly elucidate a finite cultural location for most of these films. For example, the outdoor shots in Falke films show rural Maharashtra with women and children dressed according to the early 20th century apocast traditions of that region. Drawing from Hindu mythological legacies, these films were defining viewing pleasures for the new nation in the making. Hence, their reception in a culturally complicated location like Kerala deserves to be critically analyzed as it could illuminate the itinerary of regional engagements with national pleasures. Unfortunately, the apparent scarcity of any reliable records like reviews and collections, collection statistics renders this a difficult task. Yet, the initiative to make silent films in regional languages, which soon manifested in different parts of the subcontinent, possibly indicates the dissatisfaction experienced by regional viewers while watching these films and the consequent demand for films with a more clearly etched regional affiliations. In fact, the very concept sounds a little uh, strange to make a silent film in a regional language <laughs> because uh, most of these silent films, when they were being exhibited in the regions like South, they had actually title cards in the regional languages. And uh, they were actually seen mostly by the educated elite, who were also familiar with English. So why there is still a demand for a silent film in a regional language is one of the, one of the questions that interests me. The first silent film in Malayalam, Vigita Kumaran, or The Boy Misled, was made by J.C. Daniel in 1928. By then, nearly 25 permanent cinema houses and more than 50 touring takis had been operating in the Kerala region, regularly screening silent films made in Bombay and Madras, sometimes with specially prepared title cards in Malayalam, thereby making the medium of cinema familiar to the region. So there is no reason to believe that people in this region were not familiar with cinema by the time this first silent film was being made. Hence, the prime motivation for the production of Vigada Kumaran could not have been the demand for a film text that the Malayalam speakers could understand. Instead, it must have been the desire to generate a visual text that was culturally closer to the region. In other words, the task that J.C. Daniel undertook was to inscribe the region into a medium that had already started narrating the nation through visuals. So this is one of my argument. Daniel, the person who made the first film, was an incorrigible film enthusiast who sacrificed a successful career in dentistry to seek training in cinema, cin filmmaking, uh, at some of the well-known studios in Chennai and Bombay. So uh, once again, it's a little um, um, kind of a um, stray or rather sad that even when he is trying to narrate the region in this new visual language, he has to undergo training in the national space. That is, uh, he had training in Bombay and Madras, which at that time were centers of colonial modernity. So actually, you can see the kind of conflict within this very project. <coughs> um, and uh, on his successful return to his native state, Daniel set up a film studio in Trivandrum and named it Travancore National Pictures. 
the nomenclature metaphorically highlights its cultural preoccupations. With the possibility of an independent India having become reasonably certain at that time, political leaders in Travancore and Cochin had already started debating whether these states should join the soon-to-be-constituted Indian Union or retain their independent status. In such a context, the name of Daniel's studio, referring both to the region as well as the nation in making, implied its concern to inscribe and redefine the region within and against the grand narrative of the nation. That's how I, I read even the naming of the studio as Travancore National Pictures. Though most of the silent films made in other, uh, other Indian languages had been Hindu mythologicals, Daniel's film was on a contemporary social subject. In fact, uh, um, it's now well known that uh, when cinema arrived in India, uh, the filmmakers did not really encounter the kind of problems that uh, early cinema encountered in, in Europe or America. Because in Europe and Amer America, actually, they had to generate a kind of visual language which the people could read. Whereas most of the early Indian films were mythologicals, where literally everybody knew the stories. So um, the cinema was actually undertaking a different kind of emission, showing them something that they already know. So there, what was actually taking place was merely a translation into a visual language of narratives which were already with the people. As a result, this, this is quite often pointed out as one of the reasons why uh, the early Indian filmmakers did not really have, uh, I mean, did not really have to struggle uh, to, uh, with the language of cinema. They, had, they, can just, they could just show, because these are stories which everybody knew. Whereas, when the first film to be made in Malayalam was on a social subject, and uh, then a few years later, the second film uh, made in Malayalam, once again a silent film, was on a historical subject based on the life of uh, King Martandavarma, who was actually the founder of the state of Travancore. So this is another aspect in which Malayalam cinema was, from the very beginning, different from the rest of Indian cinema. <coughs> now, an important aspect of the indigenous form of forms of entertainment prevalent in southern India even in the early years of 20th century was their participatory structure. Many forms of folk theatre and most of the ritual performances addressed and narrativized an active and interactive involvement with the viewing subject. In the process, they acknowledged and negotiated with the prevailing social hierarchies and relationships of power. The advent of cinema as a new form of entertainment subsequently must have necessitated a reconfiguration of the viewer as it addressed a subject of suture, that is, a viewer who is kind of written into or stitched into the narrative, which is different from a viewer who would actively interact, sometimes um, in very active terms, with the, the performance or the visual, which is, which is the earlier viewer available there. <coughs> That is, a silenced and passive spectator who could be inscribed unproblematically into the narrative point of view of early realist cinema. The dynamics one could witness inside the movie houses in India, even today, would testify the yet incomplete script of this anticipated rupture or shift in subjectivity. This is, again, an area which I'd like to develop a little later because uh, uh, 
quite often uh, the elite audience in India would express their dissatisfaction about the behavior of the spectators in cinema houses, especially uh, in, when Tamil cinema, when a major star comes, it's quite common for the spectators or section of the spectators to throw flowers at the screens, etc. Which, uh, from a very uh, elitist point of view, seen as an uncivilized behavior. But uh, one could also see it as an extension of the participatory spectatorship, which was actively invoked by many of the earlier ritual traditions, uh, ritual as well as even theater traditions like folk theater. Uh, even in Kerala, like whether it is uh, performances like Ottantullal uh, or many of these performances will actually in invite the interaction of the, of the spectator. And uh, one has to see how there is a continuum between these two kind of things. <coughs> but anyway, what cinema at that time was trying to generate a totally new kind of spectator, a spectator who will not react, who would actually uh, sit silently uh, and uh, get written into the narrative of the cinema. Now, simultaneous to the construction of this new viewer subject was the creation of a new civil space, the cinema house, based on a seeming disavowal of hierarchies of caste and communities that prevailed in the early half of 20th century. Yet, it also heralded the construction of new stratifications based on class and social privilege. So on one side, now suddenly people were sitting together irrespective of their caste or um, religion. On the other hand, there were new stratifications made so that uh, I mean, the rich people uh, sat in a different place, and the poorer sections sat in different uh, levels. <coughs> anyway, these early movies were, by and large, technological curiosities affordable only to a small section of the society. And they were made at a time when indigenous forms of uh, entertainment, such as ritual performances, folk art, etc., continued to be more appealing and accessible to a larger segment of the population. The subsequent emergence of talkies must have had more profound stakes in cinema's negotiations with cultural identities as they were more intelligible to a larger public. Early sound films in Hindi, Bengali and Tamil were made in 1931 and the following years saw a steady increase in the number of films produced in each of these languages. But the first Malayalam talkie was made seven years later in 1938, when Indian cinema was already celebrating its Silver Jubilee. By then, an average of 100 films were being made in Hindi every year, with Tamil, Telugu, Gujarati, Marathi, Bengali closely following the trend. On the other hand, only four Malayalam films were made between 1938 and 1949. So literally, the industry did not uh, exist at that time. This might be partly due to the crisis in resources precipitated <coughs> by the Second World War that trimmed down film production everywhere. During the post-war period, film production was quickly rejuvenated in other Indian languages, yet no Malayalam film was made between 1942 and 1947, and only one each in 1948 and 1949. This suggests that there could be other equally important reasons for the slow initial progress of Malayalam cinema. Even though Bombay had long established itself as, a, as the capital of Indian film industry, 
Studios in Madras also had started steadily producing Tamil and Telugu films with the advent of Takis. By the early 1940s, Madras had evolved as an important center of cinema production in South Indian languages and accounted for uh, nearly 20% of the total film output in India. Most of the early Malayalam films were either produced or directed by people from the Madras film industry by borrowing stories, styles, artists, songs, or at least tunes, and even costumes from successful Tamil, Telugu, or Hindi films. Some of them were even shot on discarded studio sets originally designed for Tamil and Telugu films. And this trend continued even in the 50s. In fact, recently some of the well-known filmmaker, filmmaker in one of the interviews said that one could hire a set that was used for a Tamil film at half the rate. So during the daytime, the Tamil film will be shot there, and uh, Malayalam schedules uh, will be at night. So they get it at half rate. And, the, and also, so you can see that I mean, th there was no regional specificity for any of these sets. They all looked alike. A space and uh, a rich house will always have a huge staircase going up and uh, a typical same kind of furniture, etc., etc. But what happens is the following decade, that is the 1950s, witnessed the Malayalam industry becoming more productive. Six Malayalam films were made in 1950, and the number increased steadily in the following years. Some of the earliest super hits in Malayalam were made during this decade, and specifically one film, Jeevitha Nauka, which means The Boat of Life, made in 1951, became perhaps the first major super success in Malayalam film. Such a big success that the film was remade into Tamil and Telugu, which in a certain way I think was rather incredible for uh, the Malayalam film industry at that time, that a Malayalam film could become so successful commercially and be even remade in other languages. And in the following years, there were quite a few very well-known films made, which once again uh, proved that Malayalam cinema could actually be a profitable industry. Till that time, nobody really thought that it could be a profitable industry. All these indicate that the 1950s feature as a significant phase in the evolution of Malayalam cinema as the decade in which it became a noticeable regional film industry. I shall demonstrate later how this also played a crucial role in deciding the aesthetic characteristics of Malayalam cinema. Now, having said this much, uh, I shall um, stop talking about cinema for a while and look at how the whole discourse of nationalism was kind of evolving during this period. Uh, as my attempt is also to engage the evolution of cinema with the, the evolution or the transformations in the nationalist discourse. The 30s, when Indian cinema, that is Hindi and most of the prominent regional cinemas were established uh, as a significant cultural presence, was a period of uh, was a period of spirited nationalism. The latter half of the 1920s saw widespread protests all over the subcontinent against the Simon Commission. If the appointment of the Simon Commission in 1927 was one of the earliest concrete indications from the British government of its intention to grant self-rule for India, 
The widespread protest against it manifested across the subcontinent demonstrated the positive impetus towards national formation that was already brewing in the region. Three years later, in 1930, Gandhiji inaugurated the, his civil disobedience movement with what was subsequently seen as the epic march from Ahmedabad to Dundee to defy the SALT Act. Though the march was in protest against the new SALT laws passed by the British government, the spirit it generated by, uh, it generated by sorry, uh, signified as the triumph of the Gandhian nonviolence and its potential to unify the nation in making despite the inner differences. So these are actually incidents which clearly showed that this is the period when nationalism has, had become kind of a kind of a national spirit, really inspiring, uh, generating a kind of a spirit of protest and also pride. 1931, the year in which Alam Ara, that is the first talkie in Hindi, was exhibited, also witnessed the execution of Bhagat Singh and his comrades and the subsequent turbulence all over the continent. So for the first talkie really was made at a time when uh, I mean, there was this great uh, I mean, spirit of a spirit and also anger towards uh, imperialism. Um, <coughs> If these overwhelming political uh, developments denoted, among other things, the canonization of, the narrative, of a narrative of the nation in a script that was passionate and powerful, then the formation of the Indian Air Force as well as the inauguration of the Indian Military Academy in 1933 indicated its negotiations with technological modernity. So on one side there was this uh, spirited, passionate nationalism, but then al also there were indications of a nation significantly engaging with a technological modernity. Later in 1937, when elections were held under the 1935 Act, the Congress Party, which had uh, assumed leadership of the mainstream national movement in India, became victorious in eight out of the 11 British ruled provinces in the subcontinent. Now, the reverberations of this political and cultural disturbance on the region that was later to become the state of Kerala still remains inadequately investigated. I mean, not much work has been done on it, but there is a clear um, indication that the, the, the famous Quit India movement had very negligible impact on uh, Kuchin and uh, Travancore because Cochin and Travancore around that time was going through a different kind of, um, I mean, a different uh, range of confusions uh, with, uh, with, uh, about their own relationship uh, with the British uh, imperialism as well as the possibility of a new nation. Literally, there was no impact. That's what historians say. Yet, it could be assumed that Travancore and Cochin, uh, as partially independent princely states, remained emotionally distanced from the national turmoil and preoccupied with their own political uncertainties and experiments. Parliamentary monarchy of the European model had been introduced in these regions in um, 1928 and universal suffrage, uh, sorry, uh, 1888, and universal suffrage including for women in 1921. So the, here the situation was really different. Malabar, the third erstwhile princely state that became part of Kerala, was directly under British rule and had been going through a different polit political trajectory during this period, punctuated as it was with violent insurgencies like the Malabar Rebellion. So actually, to even to think of a unified region is very difficult at this point, 
because Malabar was going through very, very violent insurgencies, while Travancore and Cochin were actually experimenting with the uh, democracy or some form of democracy at that time. A crucial question is whether we could assume an unproblematic continuity between this effervescent stage of, national, of the national movement and the early years of whatever is described as independence. Uh, the decades in which Malayalam cinema established itself as a cultural presence. Post-colonial historians point out that the strength of the Indian national movement was derived from a wide range of popular discontents or mass struggles that were endorsed and thereby assimilated by the Congress into its own hegemonic anti-colonial agenda. This was one of the strategies with which the early decades of 20th century authorized the idea of a nation people and their many struggles for freedom. And in fact, this has happened even in the case of uh, uh, Travancore and Quichin because uh, actually many of the indigenous movements of this, uh, re these regions were literally claimed by uh, the, the mainstream national movement, uh, especially that is led by Congress. And with all due respect to Mahatma Gandhi, one could see that he literally rushed to Kerala when there was this temple entry movement in Kerala, which had already taken shape and there were uh, indigenous leaders giving leadership to it. And probably it made the nation a little nervous that uh, this is one of the ways in which perhaps uh, these regions would continue to be, I mean, alienated or remain off the national movement. So literally Gandhi actually rushed to Kerala to be part of it. And then uh, since Gandhi already had such a, uh, a lot of cherished man, uh, already was a popular figure, so suddenly it became a Gandhian movement. <coughs> Even though uh, during its early stages it was hardly a Gandhian movement. But the impending uh, climate of power after 1947 demanded the setting up of not only the nation state, but also a relationship between the state and its people designed for governance. So till 1947, the national movement was ready to support and uh, endorse any radical uh, insurgency. Whereas after 1947, that was not very welcome, it looked like. The nation had to be restructured, rewritten, its story was no longer to be told, as it had been during the freedom struggle, from its many contested frontiers, but from its new center. The different and contradictory interests had either to be re-articulated or, more often, simply disciplined as the new authorities assumed the privilege to speak for the people. Subsequently, during the 1950s, as Malayalam cinema was defining itself, the narrative of the nation had started engaging in a new range of negotiations with a potentially disruptive subjectivities from inside of the nation. I shall later demonstrate that a political development of this decade that is of crucial significance to any discussion of Malayalam cinema is the formation of the state of Kerala in 1956. The impetus towards the formation of linguistic states had been raised much earlier. The demand for a united Kerala was first muted, uh, sorry, mooted, not surprisingly, in the pioneer conference of the Indian National Congress in 1928. In fact, uh, uh, Congress uh, was very keen on uh, constituting the state of Kerala, partly because 
that was one of the ways in which it could make sure that Travancore and Cochin would also remain part of the new Indian Union to be made. The demand was to merge three regions which had been evolving through different historical processes and nurturing considerable cultural and political distinctions into a single political unity. Of the three, Travancore and Cochin were princely states nominally independent from British rule and governed by local rulers with the aid of elected ministries, even though they had recognized the suzerainty status of the British Empire. With the impending formation of the Indian nation looming large in the political horizon, there was considerable difference in popular opinion in both these regions about whether or not to join the Indian National Union. Hence, the demand to merge these states could also be seen as part of a project to contain and control the pulsating sub-nationalisms that has the potential to threaten the new nation in making. The political configurations of that historical conjecture, particularly the general antagonism towards British domination, must have made it easier for the nationalist movement to discipline these regionalisms into solidarities of subordination. The script of such a disciplining project was the prominent feature of the progressive or nationalist literature of the 30s and 40s, which constituted what later came to be known as the literary renaissance in Malayalam. A telling example of this is in the form of a poem by Vallathol Narayana Menon, one of the leading uh, nationalist writers of that period, which prescribed complementary responses to the two fundamentally different affiliations enticing the new citizen subject. And the poem in, uh, reads like this. It's a Malayalam poem, and this is my own translation, so pretty bad. Uh, whenever the name Bharat is heard, pride should fill, in your, fill your, our minds. Whenever the name Keralam is heard, blood must boil in our, in our veins. In the process, the region and the nation got redefined as mutually complementing entities, soliciting spirited and emotional devotion from all those who inhabit these spaces. In other words, linguistic affiliation and patriotism were merged into a simultaneous cultural presence. <coughs> Now, the 1950s recorded a significant turning point in the evolution of cultural politics in India as regionalisms in various parts of the subcontinent strayed in a much more demonstrative way into terrains divergent from dominant mainstream nationalism. The most prominent manifestation of this was the wave of anti-Hindi agitations that swept through the Madras state. But the politics of language apparently had a milder impact on Kerala which during this decade was gearing up for the first democratically elected communist ministry in the world. It has been generally agreed upon that the socialist ideology which attained intellectual hegemony in the region towards the middle of the century played a significant role in the constitutional evolving modernity in Kerala. <coughs> now I'll skip a few things about uh, um, that period and uh, I shall go back to uh, the cinema discussions. Now, according to the available statistics, there were 209 film exhibitors functioning in the Cochin Travancore circuit and 58 in the Malabar circuit in 1952. 58 film distribution forms were catering exclusively to the region. This is in spite of the fact that less than 10 films had been made in Malayalam till then. There were also quite a substantial number of film journals in Malayalam at that time 
which actually were um, writing more about Tamil and Hindi cinemas. And uh, what I have tried to do uh, in the rest of this paper is to look at some of the discussions which appeared in these journals to, sh uh, to, to um, get an idea of the kind of pressures and demands that were being uh, made on the film industry and which kind of imagines the kind of Malayalam cinema that has subsequently to emerge. Apart from throwing light on the desires and demands which early Malayalam cinema was called upon to cater, these debates reveal the contours of the em emerging regionalized subjectivities and cultural geographical identifications that define modernity for Kerala. The trajectories of these evolving subjectivities could in turn help us explain the thematic and stylistic distinctions of the films made for this region. I do not wish to presume that views expressed in the popular journals represent the entire spectrum of local subjectivities. A large section of the Malayalam-speaking population, especially from the Malayal Malabar region, was either illiterate or economically backward at that time, and this must have prevented their voices from ever getting recorded in such journals. Yet, it is important to note that these journals were addressing the educated and probably middle-class viewers who had intellectual and cultural hegemony and hence substantial prominence in authorizing social valorizations. Some of the earliest debates that feature in these journals indicate that a specific political mission had been assigned to Malayalam cinema much before it became a recognizable genre. An article published in 1940 when only two takis had been made in Malayalam observes. Even though Malayalam region consists of three constitutive components, namely Travancore, Cochin, and Malabar, they presently remain divided in many ways and function with greater distance among themselves than England, Scotland, and Ireland. So the comparison comes, uh, 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 the comparison is very easy for them uh, to make. We hardly have any industrial or social links that could hold us together. And the, the writer is imagining, let a Malayalam film industry take root in this region. For that very reason, we might come together and become inseparable. At the moment, the northerners have nothing but contempt for the Malayalam of the southerners, and the southerners loathe the Malayalam of the northerners, literally, showing, uh, literally indicating that they were speaking two different languages. Malayalam films could be instrumental in effectively solving such problems and that would be commendable that would be a commendable achievement for Kairali. Kairali is the goddess of Malayalam. Now the observation charts out the internal features <coughs> that undermined the new region in making. So clearly uh, the, this observation shows that the new region had not in, in come into existence. It is still fissured. Um, in other words, even before its emergence, Malayalam cinema was expected to function as a unifying factor that could accomplish the integration of three princely states by obliterating social, cultural, and even uh, linguistic differences, by functioning as an ideological apparatus for the new cultural identity to be forged. Moreover, this Malayalam cinema was also being expected to generate or literally construct a new language that will be the language of the whole region. Now, once, um, I mean, this kind of a conceptualization of uh, Malayalam cinema started, naturally there is also the need to find another, so that the definition or the defining of Malayalam cinema can be 
more concrete. And this other was immediately found in Tamil cinema as well as the Tamil identity. So because another uh, letter which appeared, not letter actually, a small essay which appeared in one of the film journals says, in this early stage of cinema, film industrialists in Kerala will have to be very cautious. Third-rate films circulated by our neighborhood Tamilians should by no chance be our models. So because Tamil cinema was uh, very ethnic and regional at that time, and that's not the model that Malayalam cinema should follow. Instead, he, it says, we must learn from their mistakes and choose from the aesthetically superior English and Hindi films uh, as our models. So English and Hindi are definitely better models, representing the nation as well as perhaps the world at large. And Tamil should be uh, at any, I mean, in, by all chance rejected. But surprisingly, this was also a time when Tamil cinema was running packed uh, all over Kerala at that time. So it's also perhaps that I mean, there's no point in making films again like Tamil cinema because it's already here. So we have to be different. Now, <coughs> in um, the demand for an authentic regional cinema did quite often become a venue for the articulation of the conflicting relationship that the emerging regions shared with the hegemonic nationalism also. And in, in a letter which appeared in 1947, the writer says, even we know that the princely states are in the process of getting dissolved to become integral parts of the nation. Actually, the word he used is Bharat Bhumi. And also that everyone wants Hindi to be our common language. Yet, I do not think it would persuade any of us to give up our mother tongue. We certainly covet the advancement of Malayalam language. Hence, whatever be the limitations and drawbacks of Malayalam films, one could not help looking forward to a rapid increase in their numbers. So even though this is uh, articulated in a very mild language, the opinion clearly indicates the kind of anxieties which were being generated at that time. Because uh, the acceptance of Hindi here, in this, as it appears in this lecture, uh, the, the writer seemed to be accepting Hindi, but not in a very happy way. It, it looks like something that is inevitable. And then there is also the fear that Malayalam will be lost. And one of the ways in which we could retain Malayalam is by having a Malayalam cinema. Yet there was also, okay. Yet there was also an overwhelming disappointment regarding the cultural representations in early Malayalam films. The essence of this illusionment is well documented in P. Kunyakrishna Menon's review of the initial Malayalam films. And he says, all these films have ni nice titles. But which of these films bother to demonstrate the unique characteristics of Malayalam region? Each of them tell us a story. But do we get any indication of Kerala's culture from any of them? Malayalam films can certainly achieve popularity beyond the Sahyadri, that is the boundary of Kerala. But such films should show the precious heritage and natural beauty of our native land to the spectators outside Kerala. People outside Kerala are acquainted with an advanced film culture and what they expect from our films is a reflection of Kerala's culture. If our films are to become popular and our culture to gain the respect it deserves, we should not fail in projecting our distinct cultural identity. Here, in this observation, what I find very interesting is that on one side he's talking about the need for Malayalam cinema to be more authentic, whatever it means, in its representation. But it should be authentic so that it could entertain people outside Kerala. 
which is really surprising because it's talking about a film in Malayalam. But he says these films can be popular outside if we have greater authenticity. Now I'll skip uh, a few of these and uh, I'll come to a later part. <coughs> I'll come to a la later section where uh, <coughs> yeah, one of the reviewers of uh, the first uh, super hit Malayalam cinema, Jeevitha Nauga, uh, writes, How sweet are the melodies of the in the styles of Manjiri and Kummi presented in this film? How could any Malayali control his or her excitement when he listens to Valathol's Magdalena Mariam recited in this film? So the film is good, not because of anything else, because it, it's uh, one of the reasons that makes this film attractive is that uh, tunes from classical literature as well as folk traditions are used in the cinema. And then again, high literary texts are recited in the cinema. <coughs> Yet, another film review of this period indicates that Authenticity was an issue only when representing landscape, music, etc. So all these reviewers have been saying that our cinema should represent our landscape, uh, our kind of music, etc. But regarding the portrayal of gendered identities, there were certain logical amendments. A joint review of two films, Prasanna and Chandrika, which appeared in one of these uh, journals, say, uh, the reviewer says, it's praiseworthy that the women characters in these films are dressed in the traditional Kerala style. In fact, the women characters of most of the early Malayalam films were just dressed in a pan-Indian style, everybody wearing a sari and all that. So this was the first film in which the women appeared in authentic whatever, we'll come to that later, whatever is the authentic dress. And the reviewer says, it's good that they are appearing in the traditional Kerala style. Yet, it would have been better if Prasanna and Madaniga and Kalyani, the three characters, were given a cloth to cover their bosoms in some of the scenes. So this comment has to be read in the context of the remolding of gendered identities in colonial India, meticulously examined by po post-colonial scholars like Partha Chaturgi and Susitharu. The women's right to cover their breasts had become an intensely political issue in Kerala from the early years of the century. And its best known manifestation was um, some of the struggles taking place in Kerala at that time. Yet, covering bosom with a tradi an additional piece of cloth over the blouse had not yet become customary among the women in Kerala. So in this film, women were appearing uh, only in blouse and no further cloth uh, covering their bosom. So the reviewer says the film has to be authentic in every other level, but in this manner, let's have a piece of cloth on them so that they will look like the national thing. <coughs> These above discussions invite attention to the I'm, I'm finishing, okay. a complex trajectory of local demands and desires that motivated early filmmaking in non-Hindi regions, contesting naive logics that read uh, regional cinemas of India as juvenile versions of the national cinema. I consider them revealing as they also throw light on the delight and stress experienced my, by the Malayalis when engaging with a new form of pleasure named talking cinema. The exercise being simultaneous to the region's negotiations with a freshly constituted uh, nation state and its nascent power structure as well as its own transforming identity as a soon to be reconfigured linguistic state was a complex one that provoked both excitement and apprehension. The strain perhaps was caused by the discursive contradictions that messed up 
an unpro unproblematic fusion of the national and the regional in addition to the internal conflict that rendered even the regional integration rather tricky. These strands of pleasure and panic, I presume, together define a specific cinema aesthetic for the region, which better explains the formal and thematic distinctions that Malayalam cinema subsequently attained. Many of the suggestions raised in, in these early debates were seriously taken up by the filmmakers and they, become they became guidelines that steered the course of Malayalam cinema in the following years. This further underscores their significance to discussions which explore the historical context that engendered Malayalam cinema. That's all.